Blog Talk Radio. Radio and affiliate networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring and informing best practice pathways to that elusive triple aim. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co host of the show. And joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co host and co founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great, and understand uh, you're at a conference somewhere in South Florida. That's correct. I'm down here in Miami at a healthcare payers conference. It's been an excellent uh, day and a half so far with one more day to go. Great discussions on health IT, mobile, population health, all the good things we need to be doing out there. Excellent. Great to hear that. So for those of you not familiar with my colleague, Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville uh, Florida-based consulting firm and past chair and current board member of the Population Health Alliance, PHA, who is convening in Washington, D.C. on November the 2nd through the 4th, 2015. Join us if you can. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, HMO general management, and is the founder of a disease management company. My background includes thought leadership and consulting support, for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, PHOs, and MSOs. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, founded Health Innovation Media, and I'm known on Twitter as 2HealthGuru. Today, we continue coverage of issues in the emerging population health space, including evidence-based best practices with key thought leaders, innovators, and academicians in the space. Our special guest is Judson Brewer, MD, PhD, founder and research lead at Claritas Mind Sciences, whose mission is to develop and implement evidence-based mindfulness solutions that delight our customers. Their website further notes, the mindfulness training of Claritas Mind Sciences was developed at Yale University School of Medicine by Judson Brewer, MD, PhD. The Training principles are based on ancient wisdom traditions that date back thousands of years that have been translated for modern-day use through programs such as mindfulness-based stress reduction. Judson is a thought leader in the science of self-mastery. With 15 years of experience in mindfulness training, he has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters spoken at international conferences and his work has been featured at TEDx, Time Magazine, Forbes, the BBC, NPR, and others. So with that as an introduction, Fred, help us get to know this pioneer in the mind-body connection and why this matters for population health strategists and operators. Thank you so much, Greg, for that kind introduction. And Judd, welcome to the show today. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And where are we talking with you from today? 
I'm at the Center for Mindfulness at uh, UMass Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. Fantastic. Well, I hope you're having some good weather up there. Let me ask you first, Judd, especially for our audience, who many who may not have heard of mindfulness, tell us what that is. Uh, mindfulness is actually a, a buzzword these days, so it's kind of hard to get a good sense for what it actually means. And, um, but I, I like to think of it as, uh, you know, just a way of uh, a particular stance of paying attention to what's actually going on right now in a way that's not, you know, trying to change it or push it away or, or hold on to it. So if somebody is mindful, they're in the moment, but they're not what, of the moment or something like that is. Yeah, it's. It, it, I think that's basically it. So you're paying attention to what's actually going on right here, right now, and you're not just totally railing against it. It doesn't mean that you're not trying to change what's going on or, or work with the situation, but you're not sitting there with your uh, particular bias, the lens of, of uh, or bias glasses on, you know, like a certain color of glasses, if, if that makes sense. So how does somebody become more, I guess, more mindful? A practice. Yes. <laughs> so, so we, it's, you know, this ability to be mindful or to pay attention is inherent. You know, we all know how to pay attention. So anybody that's listening to the show, they can see that it doesn't take any effort to listen to the show. That's a capacity that we all have. Now, the thing that we can train is when our mind wanders or we're about to check our Twitter feed or about to check our email because we get bored or something like that, that's when we can notice where our mind is, you know, kind of going, drifting off on some habitual autopilot, notice that, and then bring it back to what's actually happening right now. So how do you take that approach and apply it to cravings or addictions? Yes, that's a great question. Well, cravings and addictions, you can think of them as the far spectrum of being lost in something. So if the near spectrum is, you know, getting lost in a daydream, not a big deal because we're not going to go to jail for daydreaming. Um, you know, if, if we get caught up more in those thought patterns, maybe we get stressed out because we, you know, we're, we're worried about something or we're constantly worrying that something's not going to happen. And then the far end of that, you can think of addiction where we're so caught up in whether it's a, a, a craving for a substance or a craving for some behavior that we are doing all sorts of things despite adverse consequences. So how mindfulness helps us with this is first helps us see what we actually get from those behaviors. So with smoking, for example, if somebody, you know, I get a lot of um, smokers who come in and say, but I, I actually like to smoke. And we say, okay, great, smoke. And But just pay attention when you're smoking. And when they do pay attention when they're smoking, they start to see that smoking in that moment doesn't actually taste as good as they thought it would. You know, like the burning in their lungs, the taste of the cigarette and all that stuff. When they actually pay attention to it, it's not as great as, you know, as they kind of it, pretend or tell themselves that it is. And when they start to see this, they start to become disenchanted with that behavior, seeing clearly what we get from our actions so that over time those actions lose their pullovers, lose that grab, so that then we can start to change behavior. And that's the second piece of where mindfulness helps is it can help us notice when we get pulled into an urge to act in some behavior pattern and then give us tools to be able to ride that out. Uh, and I can go into so, that a little bit if you want. Yeah, but, but getting back to that first piece, and you talked about being yeah. mindful of an individual smoking, and they suddenly say, wow, this doesn't taste so good, like you said, or, you know, heck, I noticed the smell, I don't like that, or whatever. 
but there's a chemical reaction going on in their brain that's that sort of reinforces that whole smoking urge. So how does the mindfulness work up against something like that? Well, the chemical. So you're probably talking about the binding to the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that the mm-hmm. nicotine does. Is that is that what you're talking about? Correct. Sure. So yeah. So it turns out that and I have some colleagues at Yale and elsewhere that have actually studied how much uh, how much you know how many puffs of a cigarette it actually takes to bind those receptors, and you get about 50% binding within one to two puffs. So where's the rest of that cigarette going? <laughs> so there's a chemical reaction happening and, you know, it's affecting our brain and we're satisfying those receptors and basically training ourselves to smoke more so that we keep satisfying those receptors. So when we stop smoking, for example, those receptors get irritated and they say, Hey, where's my nicotine? And then we have all the withdrawal symptoms like irritability, you know, trouble sleeping, things like that. What mindfulness can help us with is to kind of be with those body sensations and see that, oh, that's just restlessness. That's just irritability. That's just not my head exploding. You know, I, I had a patient come into my office and he said, you know, I, I, doc, I feel like my head's going to explode if I don't smoke. And we, you know, we laughed about it. I said, well, you know, your head explodes. Bring, put the pieces back together and give me a call and we'll document the first <laughs> case because, you know, your cravings, these physical sensations aren't going to kill you. Now, that's not all, you know, with alcohol dependence, for example, it can kill you if you de- if you don't detox carefully. But with smoking, you know, irritated nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, they're not going to kill you. But what you can learn to do is ride that out so that when you don't feed them, those receptors start to downregulate and rearrange so that your brain gets back to normal where you, it's used to not having that nicotine around. And that's where the mindfulness helps us kind of break that habit loop where we're otherwise we're just going to feed it the rest of our lives. So, so as you talk about, so phase one of the mindfulness thing is to recognize, Hey, I'm using this cigarette or a cigar, whatever it is, but it's really not as good as I thought when I think about it, when I'm mm-hmm. actually in the process and focus on it. And then secondarily, as I move to the phase of not smoking, you then apply a similar principle to those types of um, messages you're getting or urges you're getting or, you know, as you said, getting irritable and apply mindfulness to that too? Absolutely. The nice thing about this is it's just basically one simple thing that you can use to apply to all of these. And it helps bring to light the unhealthy behaviors. And it also helps bring to light what we're habitually worried about, like, oh, these physical, you know, these withdrawal symptoms are going to kill me. So it's a a double-pronged attack with the same type of uh, training. That's the nice thing. It's very simple. So I could see this, obviously, as I'm thinking through myself, all of the areas you could potentially apply this to. But let's first focus on smoking. Um, you know, you've done some research in that area. What what has mindfulness been able to do in terms of reducing smoking in individuals? Great question. So a couple of years ago, we asked just that question. You know, we were really curious to see if if it could actually help change behavior. And smoking, as many people don't know, smoking is actually the hardest addiction to quit. And I had a lot of people come into my study who'd already quit alcohol and they'd quit cocaine and quit other types of, you know, quote-unquote hard drugs. But you can reinforce smoking 20 times a day if you just smoke one pack of cigarettes. You know, so it, it, and you can reinforce this for 20 or 30 years. So that's a lot of times that this process can get reinforced. So we did a randomized controlled trial and just compared mindfulness training to gold standard treatment. So the American Lung Association has a, a training called a Freedom from Smoking that's widely disseminated and used in, I think, all 50 states. 
and we just we just randomized people to get one or the other uh, over eight sessions over a four-week period, and we found that the mindfulness training was actually twice as good at four weeks and about five times as good at a four-month follow-up at helping people quit smoking. We were actually pretty shocked by those results. Wow, that's fantastic. So um, it looks like it has some sustainability given that you're out at four months and now showing, what did you say, a five-time better rate than the, the standard, I guess. Yes, yes. And the um, standard is – sorry, go ahead. No, please, go on. Go I was just going to say the gold standard is six months, but this was our first study, and we didn't have you know a large amount of funding at the time to study you know farther out than four months. But four months was a pretty good outcome for us. Mm-hmm. And you've now taken this approach and applied it. You know, obviously the whole world's going mobile. Everybody's got a cell phone, and you're applying it through a mobile technology. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, so on the Yale campus, they had to spray paint on the sidewalk, look up at the crosswalks because the students are like forgetting how to cross the street. <laughs> Guess what they're doing? <laughs> they're looking at their right. phones. So we decided, you know, paradoxically or ironically to use this technology that's driving us to distraction to actually uh, deliver this treatment in the moment because context-dependent memory is really critical for an addiction to form and at the same time to break your addiction because you don't learn to smoke in your therapist's office. You don't learn to smoke in the hospital. You learn to smoke, you know, in your car on your front porch outside of work. So it's really helpful if you can actually deliver treatment to your fingertips at that moment that you've got that context-dependent craving arise so they can help you ride it out. So we took our manualized treatment cut it into bite-sized pieces and can deliver it through your phone, through videos and through animations and in-the-moment exercises that we couldn't actually do in the clinic and can uh, package all of that in a nice way that people can get this training. You know, it's 21 days, three to 10 minutes a day, very little bite-sized pieces that they can really use to ramp up their practice. And then we pair this with an online community where they can get peer support, I can support them, and I can even do a weekly live web-based check-in with these folks to give them tips. You know, where else do you get to check in you know, with, an, with an addiction psychiatrist that founded a program, um, you know, as part of a, a digital health solution? So that's, that's how we brought it all together, and that's in clinical trials now. That's, that's, so you've got this 21-day, you said, 3- to 10-minute program. Give me sort of that one day in the life of a person using your app who's a smoker. Sort of what happens? Yeah, so a day in the life, it, it basically starts out where we first teach them how they form this habit. It's really important that they know how they form the habit of smoking so they can learn how to break the habit. It's just like if you're developing a cancer drug, you need to know what the mechanism is so you can target the mechanism. We're doing the same thing. So actually on the first day, they get a little intro video, and then they get a little animation that teaches them how they form associative memories um, to smoke, you know, whether it's eating a good meal and learning to smoke after they eat, or getting yelled at by their boss and learning to smoke to make themselves feel better. So let's say on day one, a one-minute or two-minute video that introduces a program, then they get this animation that kind of teaches them that, and then they get an in-the-moment exercise to smoke, in which some of some of our patients are like, I thought this was smoking cessation. <laughs> you say, okay, bear with us. Just smoke, but pay attention. And we walk them through, you know, okay, what's it smell like? What's it taste like? And all this. And, you know, I had one smoker say, um, you know, after her first mindful smoking exercise, she said, smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Yuck. (laughs) So 
first time she really pays attention when she smokes. We're getting this all the time. People are saying, I never really noticed what it was like, and I noticed that I use this to distract myself or I do other things when I smoke. So we have them do that first, and then we give them the homework to just smoke mindfully for the next cup, you know, for the next day, and actually for the next two days. And then the next day they set their goals, and then the next day they get an exercise where they learn to start paying attention to their body called a body scan. Um, so they can develop concentration and also start to notice what the body sensations are that make up cravings. The next day they get this exercise called RAIN, where it helps them write out cravings in the moment. So they have to recognize it. That's the R. The A is they have to allow or accept it to be there, because if you're pushing your craving away, you're not going to be able to work with it. And the I is investigation. So they get curious about what does this feel like in my body, and then the N is noted. So is it tightness? Is it tension? Is it burning? Is it clenching? And then they can start to see that these are just physical sensations that make up their cravings and they're not this moral imperative to smoke. So that's, that's you know, every day they're getting this, you know, additive bite-sized piece that builds on the next previous day and they get a little bit of practice that helps them first learn to notice what cravings feel like and then learn how to ride them out. Wow. And so you, you've now got this on an app. Individuals or I guess companies can purchase the app for smoking cessation programs or how does that sort of work? Yeah, so, so we have two channels. So if a consumer wants to buy it, they can just download it from the craving to quit dot com website and they can either get it daily, you know, it's like a dollar a day or you know, about eighty dollars for a lifetime membership right now. So we've got the introductory pricing where people can just try it out. Um, we're also working with businesses, we're working with payers uh, we're working with providers because, as you can imagine, you know, there's a huge cost savings uh, for people uh, to quit smoking because they, there's so much lost time in productivity and there's so much lost time in health because you know, smokers, on average, go to the doctor more and are sicker longer and take more sick days. So there's this, like, huge return on investment for employers, especially the folks that are at risk, um, to help people quit smoking. And even better than that, to do it, you know, kind of on their own time in a way that might be uh, might really be successful because it's mechanistically based. So we're you know we're we're working with all sorts of different you know providers and payers and employers and even you know consumers themselves. Uh huh. And uh, a quick question again on the process. So if somebody goes through the first 21 days and maybe they struggle a bit and is that they go use it again? Is that sort of the 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 thinking with it? Yes. And so this is a very individualized and individualizable program. So we've had people that have quit in 14 days and then used the rest of the program to kind of reinforce their training. We've had people that have, you know, haven't gone through it every single day. So they'll go through a day and then a couple, you know, they'll keep doing that. And then a couple of days later, they'll go to the next exercise. And so they might take a couple of months. We've had some people who've gone through the entire program and then started all the way back over from the beginning because, you know, it's a whole different ballgame when you go through it again. Uh, so, you know, we, we, have a, we have people that run the gamut in terms of quitting quickly and using it as a, a maintenance treatment and people who take a little bit longer just based on their own, you know, their own habits and, and you know, frankly, how much, how motivated they are at first to quit. It's funny, we had one of our first quitters uh, was somebody that worked in a congressman's office who uh, so Tim Ryan's a, a Democrat from Ohio who's very into mindfulness. He wrote a book called Mindful Nation, and I was showing him this uh, this app a couple of years ago. And he had his he had a staff members, you know, was a smoker, and he's like, "Hey, you know, get over here, try this thing out. You don't have to quit smoking, but just tell me if it's any good." And the poor guy, you know, it's like you have to obey your congressman, um, right? Right. I don't. 
you know how it goes. And so <laughs> 10 days later, the kid emails me, and he's like, well, I, you know, I wasn't going to, but I, I went ahead and quit smoking. And, you know, two years later, I spoke to him, and he's like, yeah, I'm still quit. This was great. <laughs> so you never know. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, so as I think through, you know, this, as you've applied it to smoking, it seems like this could be applied to a much, much broader um, number of issues is it just related to substance abuse and those kinds of things, or could that mindfulness be applied to other things um, in the health sector? So if you look me- mechanistically at how the neural networks and the processes are set up, the process is called, you've probably heard of this, operant conditioning or reward-based mm-hmm. learning, like positive and negative reinforcement. So this process has been known for a long time, and evolutionarily speaking, it was probably set up so we would remember where food is. So you eat food, it tastes good, it sends a signal to your brain that says, oh, that, you know, that's survival. So re- remember what you ate and where you found it. And so you, you, know, you have this basic trigger behavior reward process that gets set up. So the, the most obvious thing to work with next, and this is what we're just about to pilot test in, in clinical trials, is helping people with stress eating because they've learned to associate you know, stress with eating food because it sends the same dopaminergic uh, signal to their brain as smoking cigarettes does. So we've been pilot testing this for the last year in my uh, outpatient clinic and with with other pilot testers, and it seems to work very well for helping people, you know, cut down on their stress eating or their emotional eating. So we'll be, you know, that's one thing we can help with in the healthcare sector is with obesity because, as we all know, that is a a huge ha-ha-ha, a huge problem. but the other ones that are obvious would be, you know, opioids, where, and there's an epidemic in Massachusetts and the rest of the country um, with other types of addictions in general, and then even uh, behaviors, you know, any type of behavioral addiction, like if somebody's, you know, like internet porn or other things like that as well. Could is Is it possible, you know, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, is it possible to take this approach and apply it to things like adherence with medications or stuff like that, or is that just completely different? That's a really good question. Uh, I would have to look at, you know, we'd want to understand, I would have to understand what the average person's um, pain points are around taking medications to be able to see how directly this would apply to that. Because you want to look at the reward-based learning. Like, what's their reward for not taking their behavior, like, for, uh, or for not taking their medication, for example? And if we could pinpoint what those processes are, then we could apply this directly to those. But I would want to, you know, I, I kind of take everything from a mechanistic lens, so I really want to understand the mechanism first, and then I could say specifically how this would apply. But the the odds are because so many of these behaviors uh, share this common mechanism, this reward-based learning, there's a likelihood that this could apply to something like that as long as you're really understanding what, you know, what the me- the behavioral mechanism is behind somebody not taking a medication. Right. And I, I can see you were mentioning um, eating and obesity. I mean, if you tackle the smoking issue and can make a large dent in that and uh, and then apply it, this, a similar approach, obviously, to the, the, uh, the, the large issue, excuse me, we have with obesity, you then, uh, you know, really taken out two, two of the drivers of quite a bit of our, our current and future health status as a as a nation, as a, a global entity, you know, and uh, both from a cost and a productivity and lost life perspective, pretty amazing. Um, and right. So Even it, if we only got those two, I would be happy. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. 
And then, and then, as you talked about, I mean, obviously, there's been a big focus out of the White House recently about opioid addiction and and prescriptions for opioids. So if you could apply it there, which which seems to have a very similar mechanism as you talk about when you deal with rehab and addictions, et cetera, uh, pretty amazing. So given that, are your major targets? We talked about a little bit earlier. Are they health plans, employers, and other third party payers, in essence, or maybe even provider groups that are taking risk? Uh, both actually yeah and mm-hmm. we've had interest from all levels here so both the providers and the payers have shown really big interest because you know it's hard and expensive to help people quit smoking for example and the obesity epidemic is the same issue right right so you're you're now going to go out and and begin to test this food you said cravings or uh stress eating is that it Yes, stress and emotional eating in people who are uh, moderately obese, I think. And uh, a study like that will take how long to do? Well, the nice thing is we can do iterative pilot testing, and we've kind of been doing that with the content of this program over the last year. So we, we over the next couple of months, we'll iter- we're, we've got a, a partnership with UCSF where they're doing a, a pilot test um, a pilot study of feasibility, and we'll be doing pilot, you know, pilot work ourselves, both in my lab as as well as with Claritas, and we can do small studies where we can learn a lot about the engagement and other types of things over the course of a couple of months, and then iterate, and then do larger studies upon that. Excellent. How did you get into this area? What motivated you to begin to look at this and try to solve this problem? <laughs> I was suffering. <laughs> uh, I, you know, no kidding. At the beginning of medical school, back in the '90s, um, you know, I'd gone through a bad relationship breakup and was having trouble sleeping. And somehow, John Kabat-Zinn's book landed in my lap, and I started meditating, like the, my first day of medical school. And I was a molecular biologist, you know, I was, you know, no interest in this at all. But I started learning. Oh, this is actually helpful for me. And as I went through my MD-PhD program, I started getting into meditation more and more and more. And then at the, when I graduated and started residency, I actually shifted gears entirely from molecular biology to learning neuroimaging and clinical trials so I could actually study this stuff. And, you know, some people, I remember people telling me this was a career killer because I'd done pretty well in graduate school. And, you know, this, what, what, what is this kumbaya stuff that you're going to do? Um, because back then, you know, this was back in 2004, I think, uh, there were very few studies published and no no real randomized trial study um, published on, on mindfulness for addictions. And this is a really, you know, can be a really difficult population to treat. I got into it personally, and then I started seeing, wow, this is really helpful. And it seems just like a no-brainer to apply it to my patients because they were speaking the same language as these Buddhist psychologists had been speaking 2,500 years ago when they were working out these mechanisms and they work these out without computers, without, you know, lab rats, without any of this stuff, just by observing their own experience. It was really remarkable. So, you know, the short answer to that is I had no idea I was going to be doing this. And boy, it was a, it was a twist for me, but now it's, it just seems like a no brainer. Like this is, you know, this is the next era in training, you know, like physical, you know, you probably heard the, the joke about in the 70s, if you were running, somebody said, who's chasing you? You know, because it was so ridiculous for people to exercise. Well, now, you know, everybody feels guilty when they don't do their physical exercise for the day. 
well, this is new, the new era. It's going to be mental training, which is the next challenge for people. You know, and I, I was just out at the U.S. Olympic Committee's uh, training site training some of their coaches in, you know, in this mental fitness bit because they're really good at training their athletes to be physically top flight. But if you're going to win an Olympic gold medal, you've got to be in there mentally as well. That's just a great way to end the show. And I'm going to tell you what, Jed, we've we got to get you back on to talk about that aspect of it and delve into this so much deeper. This whole brain-body thing that's been disconnected in the healthcare system for so long is finally coming back together. And I think that's going to create some great things for people as we understand the importance of bringing them both back together. So thank you, Jed, for being on the show. My pleasure. And uh, that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I, I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Judson Brewer, for his time and considerable insights today. Uh, do follow the innovative work at Claritas Mind Sciences at, on Twitter at Claritas Mind and on the web at www.claritasmind.com. We do this weekly on Pop Health Week. And as often as possible, we try to stick to Wednesdays, but sometimes we roll that schedule situationally. So until we meet again, and we do hope to see you in D.C. at the PHA Forum, for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.